Now, for those of you that do not know me, my name is Rudy. I'm one of the uh, elders here at the Rock Church. And uh, I have the privilege to carry on with our series out of the Gospel of Luke. And we are uh, not concluding with the Gospel of Luke this morning, but we are concluding with chapter 20. You will be happy to hear that. Um, and yeah, you will, you will remember what the context of chapter 20 was. Uh, we started with it, I think, three weeks ago when, uh, when I started with it. And the situation was really interesting because we had Jesus Christ um, heading up to Jerusalem, knowing that he had to end his ministry in Jerusalem by dying on the cross. And what was interesting is that he entered Jerusalem 10 days before the Passover meal, or the Passover festival rather, was going to be celebrated. And on the exact same day, on which all the Passover lambs that were going to be slaughtered and basically sacrificed for that festival, on that same day, he came riding in. And it was not coincidence. It was part of God's sovereign plan because Jesus Christ was the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. And, and that is the message that was preached by John the Baptist. And as you will remember, a couple of weeks ago when I preached on the first section of chapter 20, we saw that Jesus then took up a place of authority as soon as he arrived in Jerusalem because he entered the temple courts and he started preaching and teaching the word of God. He started preaching and teaching the gospel message and he took up a place that was kind of like always and, and only taken up by the spiritual leaders or the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin. And we then saw that religious group, which consisted out of chief priests, scribes or teachers of the law, and elders. They came and they attacked Jesus, and they scrutinized everything that he was preaching and teaching and what he was saying. Now, that is also not coincidence, because that is part of God's sovereign plan. Because what would happen with the lambs that were brought in 10 days before that Passover festival started is that five days leading up to the Passover, the lambs had to be inspected. The lambs had to be watched very carefully by the families and by the, the leaders of families to ensure that that lamb that was going to be sacrificed was perfect, spotless, and blameless. And so what we see through Jesus... And his interaction with his religious leaders, he is actually undergoing a testing. He's undergoing scrutiny without these religious leaders actually knowing what they're doing. They are fulfilling God's promise. They are fulfilling the fact that Jesus is the Lamb of God. And he is being inspected. He is being scrutinized once again. But as we will see today, he is found blameless and faultless and sinless. And that is exactly what the Lamb of God had to be. Because the blood that had to be shed for the forgiveness of sins of all the world had to be the blood of a perfect, spotless, blameless Lamb. But it had to be both the blood of a human being that had to make atonement for the fact that the first human being that lived, Adam, had transgressed and rebelled against God. 
And the blood also had to be perfect, sinless, blameless blood. And the only person that would be able to do that, of course, was who? Jesus, because he was the Son of God. He was God. And that is what we're going to see today. But before we jump into the text, I quickly wanted to make mention of something that has uh, come to the front in the last couple of decades. And it might be longer than that, but something that has become quite important for me, actually, uh, personally. But I think we have seen a tendency in the world. And that is this uh, resurgence of the importance of origins and trying to figure out what your family roots are. I'm not sure if there is anyone who's lately uh, become interested in, listen, what your family heritage is and your lineage and, and where you come from. Maybe it's just me. But uh, uh, about five years ago, I started with this journey because in, in 2010, I sensed and I felt that God gave me a dream and a vision for my family, uh, for uh, a dream for my family to really experience God's redemption and restoration. And part of that vision and dream was to start doing research on our family history and to kind of like compile a testimony, a book. But it was kind of hard to go and do this research while we were here in Canada. And so I tried to start uh, making contact with extended family members. And it, it was proving to be difficult because my father passed away when I was 18. So he wasn't around anymore to give me details about ancestors and grandfathers and grandmothers. And then many of his siblings, my aunts and uncles had also passed on. And together with that, uh, I've shared before, my mother suffers from schizophrenia. And so her mind is not always uh, totally there and able to recall many of the things, even though she's got a pretty sharp memory still at the age of 76. Um, all the details are not always there. And so what I decided to do was I registered on Ancestry.ca, and I thought, man, Ancestry is going to give me some answers just like so that I can know where my roots are. And, and then the results came back, and I thought, this is going to be great. And then the, the results were pretty surprising because what it showed was that I was apparently 38% ethnically British. And as an Afrikaner and a South African, that was very surprising because I was not aware of any, um, you know, Brits in my, in my lineage or in my history. And then what it also mentioned was that I was 30% Germanic European. And that was no surprise because I kind of like knew Botha, the last name comes from Germany. And my uh, name, Rudy, is also German. But then this surprise, 16% Scottish like, what on earth? And then, <laughs> yeah, and then 8% Swedish, 8% Norwegian. Can you believe that? 16% Scandinavian. Bam. And I was very surprised. There wasn't any mention in my ethnicity that I had any um, native African blood in me. And uh, I'm quite surprised by that as a South African. But you know what? Those results came back, and it kind of like gave me a clue. Okay, this is kind of like what my ethnicity roots are. But I was still not able to put the picture together. I'm still trying to, to put the family together, the family tree. But after I found those results, I was quite disappointed. And then I was reminded again that, hey, listen, 
my hope really does not lie in my earthly heritage, my earthly lineage. And my only hope was really found in the truth of what the Word of God said, what my origins were, what my purpose was as a person, and how to live life in dependence on God. So in other words, that question of morality, how am I able to live according to God's standards? And then in the end, destiny, where I was going. And I think that is a, a, a big idea that I want to submit to us first off here before we have a look at today's um, scripture. Is that I found in Jesus and in the, the message of Christianity... The only answer to those four big questions, because I believe in our society and in, in our world, the people are hungry for the answers to those questions. What, where do I come from? What is my purpose? How do I determine what is right or wrong? And then what is my destiny? Because each and every worldview has to answer those questions. And, and I want to submit that the Christian worldview is the only worldview or faith that answers those questions sufficiently. And Jesus is going to show us again here today a situation where he is addressing an issue with a group of religious people who are missing. They are, they are uplifting one of those issues because they think they can adhere to one of those aspects without God. And so out of that, I've got this message title that the cure, that there is a cure for hypocrisy. And my main point that I'm going to drive home today is that to pursue morality or pursuing morality without God leads to hypocrisy. So let's unpack that. Uh, but before we read, let's just pray. Our Father God, we thank you for this new day that we can worship you. And that we can acknowledge you as our God. Uh, Father, I thank you yeah, that we can turn to your word now. And Lord, that I can come and ask for your help. Uh, Lord, you know how uh, weak I am and the shortcomings. And uh, yeah, I just come and ask, Holy Spirit, come and fill, come and fill in the blanks. And, and those areas, Lord, where our understanding just cannot explain things, and we desperately need you to reveal yourself to us. So I pray for that. I pray, come and reveal Jesus clearly to us and the work that he had done for us. I pray that in your name. Amen. Okay, we are in Luke 20, and I'm going to first start with uh, verse 41 to 44, and then at the end deal with uh, the second section. And it says there, but he said to them, this is now Jesus who is speaking to the teachers of the law. Okay, in the previous verses, verses 39 and 40, we saw the teachers, after Jesus had refuted the Sadducees, they said the following, they said, teacher, you have spoken well. So in verse 31, when Jesus said, but he said to them, he's talking to the teachers of the law or the scribes. How can they say that the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord. 
So how is he his son? As I'd explained in the beginning, Jesus was under scrutiny. He was being scrutinized by these religious leaders. And last week we saw that there was a faction, the Sadducees, who were taking Jesus on, on the topic of the resurrection of the dead. In other words, the afterlife. Now, a bit of information on the Sadducees again is that they were mainly the priests, the chief priests. And they were kind of like on top of this hierarchy. But they were very legalistic. And they only believed in the first five books of the Bible, the Torah. And so Jesus refuted their challenge about the resurrection of the dead by pointing them back to the exact words of Moses, where Moses gave an account of where God revealed himself to Moses in the burning bush. And God said, I'm the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of the living. And so Jesus was pointing out the fact that, listen, guys, you are in the wrong. There is a resurrection of the dead. There is an afterlife because God himself said to Moses, listen, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are alive and well. They with me. Now, while they were being refuted by Jesus, there's another group, the teachers of the law and the scribes. They belong to a faction called the Pharisees. And they are predominantly throughout the New Testament and throughout the Gospels. They are shown and proven to be God's or basically Jesus' enemies. They are the ones who oppose him to what he is preaching and teaching. They, in contrast to the Sadducees, they did believe in an afterlife. They did believe in the resurrection of the dead. And they had actually done quite a reasonable job in taking Judaism the religion of Israel, from mainly having been a religion that focused on a temple worship and gathering at one specific place and sacrifices to be made, they were the ones who established the tradition of the Torah and the scriptures now being taught locally in synagogues. Because the synagogue system was not there before the exile. It was only after Israel had been carried off in exile and they had a remnant return to Israel and the temple worship being restored in the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, that after that, these Pharisees came to the front. And so they were actually a very influential group because they were the teachers of the law. They were the scribes. They were the ones who were actually on ground level having an influence on culture. And so Jesus turns his attention to this group again because they are there. They have now seen Jesus refute the Sadducees and they're kind of like a little bit prideful once again because their response is, well, look at how Jesus sorted out those guys. Can you believe that they do not believe in the afterlife? It's clear. Okay, they kind of like have that attitude once again. But it is really interesting how Jesus does it. Jesus points them again to the scriptures because we will remember from a previous occasion Jesus told them listen you nullify the word of God or you are in the wrong because you do not know the scriptures and you do not know the power of God and Jesus takes them back to Psalm 110 verse 1 but he starts off by asking them a question so Jesus is on the offense here 
He's not, he's not being taken on by these guys. They were thinking, yeah, yeah, <laughs> this is great. Jesus sorted out the Sadducees, and then Jesus is on the offense, and he asks them, but how can it be, guys, that the son of David is called, or the Christ is called the son of David? In other words, he's asking them this question. How is it that the Messiah, which was the, the Jewish understanding of the next anointed one to be king, the Savior who was going to come and demolish their enemies. How is it that he is called the son of David? Now, why does he ask them this question? And for us to answer or understand why he's asking them this question, we first got to go and quickly look at the origin of this term, son of David. The title or term son of David was a term used again to refer to this Jewish Messiah. And the reason for that is, is there were promises made by God in the Old Testament through Scripture that there was going to be a king that came out of the line of David one day. And this king, this ruler would reign forever and he would establish his kingdom from Jerusalem. And so the first example of where we see something like this mentioned is in 2 Samuel 7, verses 2 to 14, where God says this to David. He says, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That was a prophetic promise that was made to David, and it was in that time fulfilled in Solomon, but not yet to the extent that the kingdom, the throne, was not going to reign forever. Because we know that Solomon came and all the other kings came after that. They, they came a split in Israel's kingdom. And then after the exile, we did not see someone from the line of David take up the throne again. So that was one of the first promises. Another example is out of Isaiah 11 verse 1, where we see this prophetic promise about a Messiah, where it says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. And now the stump of Jesse is referring to King David's father. King David's father's name was Jesse. And so the shoot was going to come from that branch or from that stump. And a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And that was interpreted and understood as a prophetic message about one day there was going to come this Messiah. Jeremiah 23 verses 5 to 6 says this, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely, and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved, and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. That was not fulfilled and still has not completely been fulfilled yet, right? But it was this promise of someone who was going to come. So in these texts, we see these prophetic promises. And it was then understood by the people almost for a millennia that, listen, we are waiting for the Messiah, someone who is going to come, this ruler. So the people were waiting, 
And here comes Jesus. He is born. He grows up in stature. Shows wisdom and understanding in the word of God. At a very young age already, we, we see that. It is told that at the age of most probably around 12, he was in the temple courts reasoning with the teachers of the law. And they were astonished. And he comes and he starts his ministry at the age of 30. And so we see then in the Gospels this linkage being made. The first example and the biggest example we see of this title then is in Matthew 1 verse 1. Where Matthew starts with the lineage of Jesus. He starts off by writing, he says, The book of genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And again in Matthew 1 verse 20, we see he says, as he considered these things, this is now Joseph, that's uh, Jesus' stepfather. Behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived of her is from the Holy Spirit. So in both of those instances, we see that the genealogy starts. Matthew notes that, hey, this is the genealogy of Jesus, who is the son of Abraham, the son of David. He links that clearly to the prophetic messages, but he also, in the story, makes it clear that Jesus' stepfather, or half-father, how you would want to call that, um, also comes from the lineage of David. And Luke does the same thing. I'm not going to put up Luke's genealogy. Luke's linea uh, genealogy is a little bit different, a, a different emphasis. But again in there, it is noted, David. Now together with that, we have examples then where the people cry out, son of David. Luke 18 verse 38. There is a situation where there is a blind man. He cries out to Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. In Matthew's account, when Jesus enters Jerusalem before the Passover, the people are shouting, in Matthew 21, verse 9, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Is that supposed to happen? <laughs> I guess not. Okay, he's going to figure it out. All right, so what's the point here? Two points, okay? This title originated from God as prophetic messages, as promises that the Messiah was going to come through the line of David. In other words, be a man that was going to rule and reign. And then secondly, the people understood that to mean that this was the title to be given to the Messiah. And so they were the ones who were calling out to Jesus as being the son of David. Now, Jesus himself did not refer to himself as the son of David. He referred to himself the majority of the time as the title of son of man, which is out of Daniel 7. And it refers to this figure, this messianic figure that also takes up the seat, the judgment seat together with God. And so the question is, why does Jesus do this? Why does he then ask them again this question? Why is the son of David or why is the Christ? the Messiah, called the son of David. And what he is pointing out to them is this. He's insinuating and he's interpreting it in this way. And he says, how can it be that the Messiah 
is called the son of David. In other words, he's the only man. He's a human being. When David himself said, the Lord, Yahweh, said to my Lord, Messiah, come and sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. In other words, he is basically telling them, you guys are interpreting your own scriptures that you supposedly are walking around preaching and teaching. And supposedly you are saying you are keeping these scriptures and laws fully. You are missing the point. You are missing the point that the Savior, the Messiah that was going to come, yes, was going to be 100% man coming from the line of David. But David himself says that this Messiah is going to be God. Because you see, they wanted to stone Jesus for saying that he is God. For implying that he was God. This is not just something that happened in their time. People missing the fact that Jesus said and proved that he was God. But it is something that happens in our time as well. Where people are happy to acknowledge Jesus. Yeah, he was a good man. Oh, what a great teacher. And people in our culture, they adopt a little bit of Jesus' teachings and they throw it in there with some new age teachings and a little bit of karma and a little bit of this and that to answer the four big questions of life. Where do I come from? What is my purpose? How do I decide what is right and wrong? And what is my destiny? And they miss the fact that Jesus himself is the answer to those four questions. Now the question is here in the end. Why does Jesus use this scripture? What is, what is his bone to pick with the Pharisees? Right? Like what does this have to do with hypocrisy? Because if we go to the, the next part. Of today's text. Verses 45 to 47. We see that Jesus says this. He says. And, or it says there, and in the hearing of all the people, he said to his disciples, he now turns his attention to his disciples that are there, and he warns them once again. He says, beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplaces and the best seats in the synagogues and the places of honor at feasts. So those are the things that they're doing. That look great. Looks moral. They're the ones that are fighting for justice in the streets. They are protesting. They are posting on Facebook and social media. Everything that's wrong with the president that's south of the border. Or across the sea. But in the meantime, look at verse 47. They devour widows. They devour widows' houses. And for a pretense, make long prayers. They will receive a greater condemnation. So Jesus warns his disciples, listen, watch out. Not just for people who are supposedly teachers of the law. Watch out for people who put up this front. But in the meantime, they are taking advantage of the most marginalized, the most 
fragile people. Why does he warn his disciples about this? What does this have to do with this issue of the Messiah being called the son of David? I want to submit to you here in conclusion that he was warning them that if you pursue morality, if you try and put up a front, if you try and say, well, I know all the scriptures, I know all of the laws, I, I, could, I keep the Sabbath, and I read my Bible every day, and I do all of, I tick all of the boxes, and I portray this image of perfection, and I try and do that without God, it leads to hypocrisy. Because the Pharisees thought that they had it figured out. They thought that when it comes to those four issues again, the four biggest questions of life, origins, they thought, yeah, we had it figured out. This is Yahweh. And the purpose is to live a life that is separate and holy from other nations. And the way we're going to do it, this is where the problem was, morality. The way we're going to do it is we're going to uphold God's law and stand it. We're going to do it. 613 laws We're going to keep it. We're going to try our best. That is where our hope lies. It's in being moral. It's in being good. It's in in how many good posts I can make on Instagram and showing how beautiful my family is and how organized we are and how with every winter we've got everything, you know, organized. We've put our summer clothes away. We have got all of our containers and boom, we are ready for the winter. And and this is our holiday we're going to. Even though we're stuck this winter year with COVID-19, we're going nowhere. But I, I put up this image of everything is always okay. Everything is perfect. Everything is great. But in the meantime, behind my social media life and when I'm at my house with my family, I'm short-tempered. I don't spend time with my children. I don't love my spouse And that's what the Pharisees did. They uplifted this third issue, morality, how to live a moral life. And they thought in keeping that, they would uh, reach the end destination of everlasting life. And so what Jesus is doing is he's bringing that to the front because he takes them to a passage that clearly says the Messiah is going to be God. You need God to rescue you. You don't need a political leader or a military leader that's going to come and demolish the Roman Empire. You need God. And the way that God's going to do that is not the way in which you think because you are self-righteous. The way that God was going to do that is something that you would not be able to imagine. And that is the answer to hypocrisy we get then in Acts 2. That, Acts 2 gives us the answer then of how God gives a way for people to be in right standing with God. And in other words, be able to sufficiently live a life in which those four questions. Where do I come from? What my purpose is? How do I live for God? And how do I end up in eternity with God? How it's answered. And it happens in Acts 2 after Jesus had now 
died on the cross. He was raised from the dead and had ascended into heaven. The Holy Spirit is poured out. And Peter preaches the first sermon. Peter preaches this whole message again that David was the greatest king that ever lived, anointed, but he died. He is dead. But Jesus came as the direct lineage from David to fulfill that same psalm. And then in Acts 2 verse 36, Peter says this, Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made both Lord and Christ this Jesus whom you crucified. God has made Jesus, both the Messiah, the man who was going to come and rule and reign and be king, but also God, Lord. And I don't have it up there, but after that it says, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. They said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. In the beginning, I talked about finding your origins and roots and trying to answer those four questions of origin, purpose, morality, and destiny. And in the end, the only way that that can sufficiently be answered is in that scripture that it is for us to acknowledge we need Jesus. We need God. Because that is who He is. Jesus is God. He is both Messiah, my Savior. He is both the one who came and He died for my sins, to forgive me for my sins. But He is the one who is God, who is in the end going to be in that judgment seat. That psalm says... Come sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. There's going to be a day of judgment in which Jesus will then judge. And his warning was to his disciples, those that live hypocritic lives. In other words, they try and live a life that's moral without God. They will in the end face a harsh judgment. There's going to be a major consequence for them. But that's not the reason we want to follow Jesus and acknowledge him as Messiah, as Christ and God. The reason we want to do that is because of what he calls us to. You see, we're not, the, the Christian faith is not about just being saved from something, but it's being saved to someone and for a purpose and for a higher calling. So imagine that. Imagine a life that is characterized by that humility and dependence through repentance, through acknowledging of your sin. Imagine what it can look like. Imagine what it can look like in our family life. When parents, when fathers repent, when fathers turn to their children and to their spouses, and they ask forgiveness for sins, to ask forgiveness for the ways that they have wronged them. For spouses to do that and model that to children. Imagine what that can look like for employees. 
to stop trying to put up a front and fake it until you make it. I've, I've, I've done that many times. <laughs> when I was a teacher, man, it was always hard. I faked it until I made it. But it, the, the thing is, I never made it, okay? And you just got to acknowledge it. Like, you're never on top of things. You're never the best, okay? What, what would happen if we just openly confess that and be honest and be real? Because I think the world wants authenticity. How would that look like for employers to be that kind of real with their employees? What would that look like if politicians did that? Man, if that happened, if politicians did that, Jesus is going to come back then. Okay? <laughs> but it's possible. But it is. But imagine that. And I think that is, in the end, the, the message of the gospel is that we are not able to do it in our own strength. And that is why Jesus calls out these Pharisees once again. So to end off today, the cure for hypocrisy can only be found when we stop pursuing morality without God and we start pursuing Jesus first with our whole hearts, souls, minds, and strength. Maybe today is that day for you if you have not done that yet. And maybe for those of us that have made that commitment, maybe today is a day that we need to once again repent and acknowledge the areas of our lives where we have pursued anything else other than Jesus. So let us just uh, spend time in prayer here. And as I pray, the worship band can uh, come to the front.